So it's good to be here. Yeah, I'm going to talk today about one of my recurring um, practices, which is the, thinking about the concept of coming home. And a uh, number of reasons for this. One is, of course, that uh, I've just come back from my annual trip to Ireland for a month. Um, and uh, I must confess that, that while I was there, yeah, I've gone so many times now, but before going and after, people say to me, are you going to move there? Close your home, San Francisco or Galway. And um, I do not have an answer for that, for any of those questions. Um, but I do notice that during the course of the year that I go there because it's a very spiritual place for me. Uh, connection, safety, and and uh, being by the ocean, chances to be of service. Um, but I do also notice that there are times when between now and next June, um, when I'm thinking about it, um, the reality is that it's um, it's partial, and I'm sure we've all had these days. It's partial just because it's not here. It's like, why are you going there? Because it's not here. Um, but you know, there's other things about coming home. I I recently spent two weekends volunteering with the Joe Good Dance Company, and, and uh, the, the piece that they were doing was called "And And So We Go," and it was basically a description of of aging and and what that means. And, the song, the theme song that that little ditty that went throughout it was "I'm happy to be here," and then it wasn't done in the traditional theater. It was done in the large room at Yerba Buena, and and so the the audience moved from room to room to room, where there were dancers or singers or performers uh, readings, um, and the theme of all of those was what's happening to the body, and and Joe Good, who's at least my age and I suspect a little older, um, was was. At, was uh, sort of the lead principle of this particular uh, endeavor. And he would go from room to room with dancers of different ages. Um, and he would, he would sing this little ditty as you moved. I'm happy to be here. Um, and it was mostly irony. And so, so he would say, here's the body and here's, here's this dancer's home in her body or his body. Um, and, uh, and this is also a body he would point to himself. And then there was, one of the performers was a drag queen who would, whenever there was an opportunity, would say things like, so all bodies um, go through the aging process. And, and uh, I think she actually said rotting at one point. Um, and then she would point to Joe, who would smile good-naturedly. And then she would say, just some of the rest of these people. Uh, and, and so there's that concept of home. What does home mean? Um, and then the third piece that's really up for me right now is that that I was doing a little introduction of myself for a group that I spoke to recently, and they said, well, where do you practice? And I thought, hmm, that's a good question, because in Buddhism, we, we like to have a spiritual home. Um, and, 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 you know, most of us do. But I realized that I practice with about equal amounts of time and, and energy um, at the Meditation and Recovery Sangha, at the Great Spirit Sangha, at the San Francisco LGBTQ Sangha, and uh, at Dragon's Leap. Although Dragon's Leap, um, Michael Winger's song will shortly be closing. He's retiring to to uh, Healdsburg to the to the Zen Center's Elder Monk program, um, and of course at Hartford Street Zen Center, where I've been practicing for you know more than a, a decade and a half. So I really believe you know, that that we can find wisdom and compassion and awakening uh, wherever good people come together to practice and to care for each other, and to think about healing, and to think about service to one another, and, as you know, for me, um, to think about joy and delight. Um, 
Because as Emma Goldman said, if I can't dance, I'm not joining the revolution. So for me, there has to be some level of, of at least the capacity for joy and, and happiness. You know, not a denial that the world goes around and so are so as um, as Joe said, happy to be here even on days when you know your back hurts or your head hurts or whatever it is that's hurting. Um, but I think um, that you know uh, we need a place that's our home where we can get guidance from a specific teacher and from a sangha. And so um, in the past, it's since 2021, excuse me, um, when I received our transmission, I've been working with students and I now have 11 students, um, five of whom are studying the precepts in anticipation of a Jukai at the end of the year. And so a number of people have said to me, including those students, well, shouldn't we have our own sangha? Shouldn't we, um, you know, so I thought, yeah, I guess, I guess we should. And I guess it's whether I think we should or not, we have one. We meet all the time and we've been studying. And so um, we now officially um, are, will be known from now on as Ocean's Compassion Sangha. So I have another place to practice. Um, and, and that one, I will be the teacher officially. Um, and those words translate. The reason I chose that is, well, first of all, anybody that knows me knows I spent a great deal of time on oceans because I find it very nurturing and, and very spiritual. Um, but the, the words, the translation are one of many, um, would be Kai Karuna. Um, and Kai, in fact, means ocean, um, but it can also be interpreted um, depending on the, um, where you read as recovery or restoration. And of course, in the Zen tradition, we do Jukai, which is giving or receiving the precepts. So, so there's that. And Karuna, um, is the word for compassion, um, and it comes from the Sanskrit word uh, meaning to do or to make, um, uh, is, is one of the you know, interpretations. Uh, and it's been interpreted over the years as indicating a form of action-based compassion. And so my um, spiritual practice has always been um, involved with engaged Buddhism, um, believing that we should be in service to one another, uh, and that we are. Um, so, so um, just by our daily lives, that, that we are in fact doing that. So for me, I've always um, believed that monastic practice, um, we were just talking about that upstairs, is a beautiful, important um, aspect of Buddhist tradition um, and, and current reality uh, for some people. Uh, and I believe that we're, we are, um, uh, it's, a, it's a benefit to all of us that people are in monasteries. Uh, deepening that particular kind of practice and doing studies and research and, and figuring out um, all the important um, bits of Buddhist history. Uh, I also believe deeply in the forms and practices um, in our temples and Zen centers. Um, this one, for instance, um, where I'm very happy to practice. Um, and I believe that Suzuki Roshi um, had a message for all of us when he said uh, that it's very important to sit on the Zafu. Um, and what's equally important is to take the mind of Zazen with you when you go into the rest of your life. Um, and at one point he said, um, um, if he's quoting someone else, but he said, calm in inactivity is a gift. Calm during life's activity is practice. And so for me, the idea of community-based Zen um, or engaged Buddhism has always been a guiding piece of, of the practice that, that I have, um, that I work and that I have worked on, that I help other people with. And so I believe that how we treat ourselves, our families, um, our friends, our colleagues at work, 
uh, what we do for work for compensation, what we do as volunteers, um, and the way we treat the planet. Those are all beautiful forms of Buddhist practice. So what we do here is important, and, and um, I always want to continue it. Um, but also the practice exists in the rest of the world. You know, when, when David is in the garden, that's absolutely Buddhist practice. Um, uh, or the gardeners that we have um, in, in the house. Um, and, and when we do other volunteer types of things that we do, um, um, like, you know, preparing um, the Zendo, preparing the web page, doing all the other stuff that we do, that's all Buddhist practice, and we should feel good about that. Um, so this is my home. Um, this is one of my homes. Um, and when I come here, the other places that I practice come with me, and other places that you practice your jobs, your families, um, other other sitting groups that you might be a part of, um, the recovery community for some of us. That's another spiritual home. So, so that's um, part of the thinking for me right now about what does home mean, and if I'm having going to have if I stop, stop saying that now that I have a sangha. Um, um, how do I serve as a homemaker for the people that want to practice there? And and, uh, and there for us is not a physical place at this point in time. So I was looking at the Abhidharma, and there's a line in the Abhidharma that says, the practice of meditation is a journey of return to who we really are. We come home to the body, so vulnerable, ever-changing, and magnificent, because it is the soil in which understanding grows. It is the vehicle of enlightenment. So again, there's this wonderful thought of well, coming home. Um, the journey of coming home and Buddhist practice is really coming back here, first of all, coming back here. Norman Fisher says that uh, the basis of forbearance, patience, and self-control is the body. When things get tough in our meditation practice, we hold on to the body, paying close attention um, in sitting, walking, breathing, and so on, and staying with the body. So. You know, I was delighted when I found my way to Zen practice, um, partially because it was the first, you know, I was both hyperactive um, and a cocaine addict. Um, and so it was the first place I ever went where they said, come in and sit down and face that wall. And I said, and then what? And they said, nothing. It's a four day retreat. That's you're going to be right over there. Um, and I said, well, are there instructions? And they said, no, don't, don't need any, but there will be availability for some tomorrow morning. Um, so I, I, it was an absolutely other otherworldly experience for me those first few days and, and ever since. Um, that I suddenly was, was there sitting with, I didn't have to be witty or entertaining. I didn't have to be the smartest or cleverest one in the room. I couldn't... Um, be looking at other people and making assessments and judgments. Um, the caddy kind that were common for me and others back in the set for me, I won't speak for anybody else, um, or the kind that were about, oh, let me see how I can help you and help you and help you. None of that. It was sit, face the wall, say nothing, and just breathe. And the truth is that during that very first retreat, there was a point when I felt, I'm home. I'm home. And you know, it was the first time that stillness or calmness wasn't just a short interlude between the next crisis that was going to come up in life. So in my 40 years of practice, just 30 years, excuse me, of practicing Zen um, this coming year, um, what's happened for me is the repeated experience of as I deepen my practice, as I 
am able to become a kinder, gentler, calmer person. Um, what I figure out is that, you know, there's a line in The Wizard of Oz where, um, where uh, Glenda says to Dorothy, you've always had the capacity to go home. You just needed to know what you were looking for. And so what a gift it is in our Buddhist practice when we find out that what we're looking for is our Buddha nature, um, that we all have it. And I think a lot of times we hear talks or we speak to each other and we talk about Buddha nature and we sort of believe everybody has it. Um, and then we get really busy on trying to sit up exactly straight or do the right number of bows, all of which are forms that help us to practice. But, you know, we can get distracted by the actual um, uh, uh, journey to authenticity that Buddhism offered us. So uh, Norman Fisher um, also says in his article about, about meditation practice, meditation is just a simple childish practice, just sitting, just breathing, being with whatever arises, but then letting go and coming back to just sitting and just breathing, trusting that being alive in the body is enough. So that's a, a wonderful gift, it seems to me, of, of, of an opportunity to say, ah, okay. So if we're in our other home where we live, um, we spend a lot of time making, well, various amounts of time, probably depending, I don't mean to judge, uh, keeping the place clean and orderly and presentable. Often, um, in my experience, talking to other folks and knowing my own experience, often it's where I live but I keep it clean and orderly and nice in case you show up at the door, right? So I want it to be nice for me. And, you know, you, you set up some things and, you know, you hopefully pay some attention to what's good for me, what serves me in terms of comfort and safety and health. Um, but I think a lot of us, um, in terms of uh, cleaning and presentation, has a lot to do with whoever else might come in and see that and what it says about us. So... Spiritual practice um, in all of its manifestations, in the zendo, um, on retreats, at, at practice periods in sashin, or in, in the rest of our daily lives, really is this practice of coming home. Um, and the journey to return involves not only the so-called spiritual life, but all the other aspects of our life, our work, our relationships, um, and I really believe that creative expressions, dreams, um, when we're sick and when we're well, and ultimately when we're dying, uh, meditation practice is at the center of the journey um, to return, to return, and that that should fuel us and inspire us. Um, not sure what that was, but nice opportunity to stop and breathe. There we go. So our spiritual path, um, which I really firmly believe, um, uh, is is this journey and it's a journey into the world and home and and to be at home in the world so i think it begins with the facts that all human beings uh, are deeply wounded you know i think we begin life as as babies and children um and and throughout life um we we try to meet our basic instinctual needs for survival uh and security for affection and esteem for approval and validation, and ultimately for power and control. Um, and so these pursuits are essential for our survival. That's, you know, that's what we need to survive as human beings in a crowded um, planet, fast-moving planet. We need all of those things. Um, and I think for a lot of us, we, we, um, we have the experience of um, not exactly getting the training, the support, the nurturing, um, and the guidance that we needed and to develop all those things. And so because they're instinctual, we develop them on our own. 
Sometimes we overdevelop them. Sometimes we focus on one rather than the other. Um, but for all of us, you know, we had our parents, most, almost most people had parents or caregivers um, who were there to guide and, and provide uh, examples of how that works. Uh, and no parents are perfect, and some parents are way less than that. Um, and so for many of us, uh, we go through that list of, of um, instinctual desires, and we find ourselves at power and control. Like we like to have some power and control over our lives and how things go. Um, and not everybody here is in recovery, but some are. And many of you have heard this expression before. Um, but, you know, we're looking for power and control in a world where people, places, and things constantly um, come into our, into our connection. Um, and if we thought we had power and control, we quickly find out um, that we do not. And I believe that in the spiritual practice, you eventually find out that, A, we do not. That's just reality, and we can lean into it. Um, and B, it's a good thing, um, because there were a lot of years and decades of my life where if I had power and control, things would be even messier than they were. Um, so I think it's a little wonder that many of us um, trying to learn those things at home and trying to identify who we were as people um, and what kind of, of little um, boys and girls and, and uh, children um, we were going to be and how we were going to find support for that. And, you know, any of us who, uh, uh, you know, maybe were lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, but, but also maybe wanted to be uh, a ballerina or an ice skater instead of a football player, an engineer, whatever your parents had in mind for you, or young women that, you know, wanted to be an engineer or the president um, and their families weren't ready to support that yet. Um, or people that went off to college um, um, with working class, blue collar parents, as I did, um, I was the first one to go to second one to go to college um, in, my, in my extended family, um, and so for me, um, I decided that I was going to do what I wanted to do. So I got a bachelor's degree in philosophy, which my father, till the day he died, said, "This is my son. He went to college and studied nothing," um, for which he had to pay. He claimed, which was actually actually not true. Um, and in those days, a, grad, a college level course cost eleven dollars credit hour. So even if he did very things, it was okay. Um, but I think it's no wonder that some of us run away from home, um, um, quite literally, in some cases, you know, pack up a little bag and take off, uh, or leave home early to find safety, to find nurturing, to find life somewhere else. Um, but oftentimes, uh, many of us have run away from home internally. You know, we left home internally. Um, we found creativity, we found isolation, we found reading, we found hobbies, we, you know, um, for some of you who are younger than me, you found computer games and, and could go into other worlds and other places. And so we ran away. Um, and I just want to make a note that we're not, I'm not in any way diminishing um, the, the journey in the lives of children who, because of poverty, violence, racism, homo, homophobia, transphobia, um, or um, terrible uh, poverty and trauma um, actually did end up without homes and did have to go from home to home and did go from home to institution, etc. So I don't mean to diminish that at all by, by my remarks and, and thoughts today. Um, but what I do now is that for them and us, um, all of us, um, all of us in some way found the world a hazardous place or a challenging place or a conflictual place. Uh, and all of us were looking 
for connection and guidance and someone to teach us and hold us and support us. And for a lot of us, um, we didn't find it. You know, I'm reminded of Helen Reddy's old song, It's You and Me Against the World. Um, and I'm re remembering that when I was a kid, um, I said to my sister, when she said that that was a song that could speak to our lives, I said, not for me, it's the world is against me. So I, I in that sentence, looking back with horror now, um, I said that I didn't see that I had any connection at all to my sister who was talking to me about connection. Um, so sometimes it takes a while to learn. Um, and we ultimately were able to patch that up. Um, but I was looking at a book this week by Thomas Keating, who um, is a Christian, um, I think he's a priest, that talks about centering prayer, which is a concept that I've always been fascinated by. And I think it's what we do. Um, coming together, getting quiet, um, uh, and finding finding ways to come back home, come back to ourselves, or for him to be in unison with, with his higher power. Um, so what he says is that um, in identification, looking for identification with others, family, community, ethnicity, race, religion, sports, social groups, school, etc., um, what often happens for those of us who are isolated or don't feel connected um, is that we over-identify. Um, and some of us may have heard about, or some of us that are old enough may have read a book called The Best Little Boy in America, um, the story of a, young, of a young person who was who was just trying to fit in, and his way of fitting in was in every single situation he excelled to the point of exhaustion. He, you know, if he was in school, he had to get all A's. If he was on a sports team, he had to be the best, jump the highest hurdles, whatever, whatever it might be. And, and so some of us recently saw a movie called Barbie, um, which I suspect um, is for young women, um, a version of that same thing that idealized, this is what you could be, um, the, the perfect woman. And, and afterwards, when we're having coffee and, or tea and cookies, we can, we can talk about movies. And that one, if anybody has seen it or uh, has a real reason why they're not going to see it. Um, but I think it's that I, that over-identification with the groups we're trying to fit into. And, you know, we go through periods, and it's normal adolescent development. You know, we wear certain clothes at school, and then those clothes are no longer any good. And, and we join certain clubs, and and we, you know, sometimes select certain careers because of the, the prestige or whatever that they're going to bring us. Um, and I think all along the way, if we have love and guidance from folks, our, our parents, our friends, our family, our spiritual communities, um, somebody says, is that is that really what you want? You know, I was talking to someone yesterday, this early this week, who was a dentist that was um, that I was seeing, uh, and his father, his two uncles, his grandfather, and his great grandfather were dentists. And I just wonder, you know, and, and I and I didn't ask him. I don't know why. Um, at, at what point, you know, did you ever ask yourself, is this really what I want to do? You know, is this really what I want to do? It might be. Yeah, there's lots of reasons for you want to do something. But is this really what I want to do? Or was there no choice? Was there, you know? And the same with careers, the same way we set up our lives. Who we date, who we partner with, who we date if we date, who we partner with if we partner, um, how we stay partnered, um, how we become so often who that person wants us to be. And also in, in bigger life, um, we become... Uh, that over-identification, absolutely willing to be whatever it is they, quote-unquote, uh, want us to be in order to fit in and to be left alone. So, so I think that those experiences, um, uh, perhaps of isolation and rejection when we were young, um, and that isolation and the rejection part of that, um, the abandonment part of that, could be real or imagined, could be my experience, and it's still real. 
could actually have happened that other people could see as well. And that's real. It could also just be my experience of nobody really seeing who I really was. I talked to someone this week who was in tears for quite a while, just talking about in the family that he lives in, that nobody sees him. No one has ever seen the real him. Uh, and he is currently involved in getting a master's in business administration to go into the family business. And when he's not there doing that, every moment of his day is spent painting. The man wants to be an artist. <clears throat> the young man wants to be an artist and can't figure out any way to tell either one of his parents that. Um, and so he's currently spending you know, time and energy and money at a college to become something that he has no desire to be. So, so I think for a lot of us, you know, that that sometimes those survival skills that we had, like, okay, I'll be who you want me to be. Yeah, if you want me to join that club, I'll join that club. If you want me to um, go to church every Sunday, I'll go to church every Sunday. And nobody along the way has held us warmly and said to us, what do you really want? What speaks to your heart? What will make you um, the, yeah, authentic, your authentic self? Where, as we use the expression, where will you find your Buddha nature and express your Buddha nature? And so I think the coming home piece that, that I'm focused on um, in my spiritual practice a lot of the time is where is home? Um, and if nobody else asks me that, what speaks to my heart? Um, what, how do I learn to ask myself that? And how do I learn to ask myself that in the spiritual practice that's, that there is no separate self? So am I, um, am I making space for my Buddha nature? Am I listening to my Buddha nature? Am I expressing my Buddha nature? And how do you do that when there's no separate self? And so that's another real gift of, this, of Buddhism for me, is that it's not a me question. Um, a Buddha nature, we all have it. Everybody has it. Um, and if I'm suffering, then I can assume other folks are suffering. And if I'm having days that are feeling nurturing and rewarding and complete and authentic, um, joyous, happy, and free, um, then I assume other people are as well. And so the question or the path of how to get back home, how to get to my Buddha nature, and how to express that in this busy and, and crazy world we live in, um, suddenly um, becomes something that could be useful for others. Um, and that's, um, uh, uh, we have been told in Buddhism by Dogen and others that, that we teach, we are Buddhists, we are teachers 24-7. So everything we do, uh, is teaching. And it's teaching because people say, oh, that one's been a Buddhist for 10 years. And that's how he behaves. That's how he reacts. That's how he does. Or that one's been a Buddhist for a week. And look at how kind and gentle and open he is to learning and teaching and, and being with other people. So in Buddhism, I think it's, it's that, you know, we have this capacity to teach ourselves and others. Um, so Zen teachers, um, and sometimes tell us that um, we let go of everything, um, everything that we think we are and everything that we think the world is. Um, our basic Buddha nature can shine through when we do that. But in Buddhism, there's also a vital and complementary teaching that our ancient and unhelpful habits of body, speech, and mind can't be sidestepped in a simple letting go process. Um, that fails uh, to, to really face and wrestle with our deep greed, hate, and delusion. And I would say isolation and abandonment and so forth. Um, there's a long, careful cultivation um, that we must undertake um, if we want to achieve our Buddha nature. And so that's these processes that we do, the sitting zazen, the, the reading text, 
well, working with the teacher, talking to good Buddhists, good friends along the path. So um, I knew that I was home shortly after I got to Zazen, shortly after I began to study Buddhism, um, that I could be safe um, and that I could experience stillness um, and that I didn't any longer have to think of that um, just as a danger. Um, and so it's interesting and perhaps challenging endeavor for us. Um, for many of us, we grew up in, in families or, or schools or wherever, where looking to your body um, um, wasn't really such a good thing. Um, some of us spent years um, not looking in a mirror. Some of us spent years not looking down to see what was there. And, 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 and you know, a few others spent lots of years looking in mirrors and neither saying what was really there and loving it or imagining what they were saying and loving that. But, but either one of those things could happen. But the idea of coming back to your body and having your body be a source, a stabilizing force in your spiritual practice and your cognitive and emotional development um, was sort of a, a new um, a new concept for some of us. So there's a guy has a website uh, that's called the Practice uh, the Practical Buddhist. Um, his name is Ronald Hirsch, and he says um, that coming home uh, is is uh, practice uh, coming home refers to my unwounded and pre-traumatized self. So we're trying to in his in his way of thinking come to before our unwounded and untraumatized self, and that that could be the basis um, for moving forward, for moving in unison with others on the path. So when I read that, I thought, well, easy for you to say. Um, uh, maybe you didn't have the kind of wounding or trauma that I had, or certainly that other folks have had in different ways that I have um, and different levels. So I think what he's actually trying to say, or the way I work with it, is that we develop uh, responses to those wounds and those traumas, and that over time, those responses become habitual behaviors, right? And so those habitual behaviors begin to be um, the ways that we react to the world and the ways um, that, that, we, um, that we move ourselves forward. So sometimes uh, I think it's really important um, for us to find ways to say those behaviors served me, those attitudes served me, um, those ideas about how to encounter other people, organizations, institutions served me because that's how I survived. Um, and then it's important to be able in our practice to arouse mindful awareness and say, do I need to keep those now? Do I need to keep those or can I let some of those go and find myself, find my Buddha nature in a place that's less um, defended that's less worried about the next onslaught that's coming in. Um, and, you know, um, to do that in a way that's compassionate to self. So not to deny that the world is still complicated and that there are still folks out there, you know, out there, you and me against the world. Um, so there are still some folks in the world that, that could be dangerous to us. Um, but, but I've quoted here a number of times, one of my favorite, it's a Native American um, saying that says, healing doesn't mean the trauma goes away. The healing means the trauma does not have to be the organizing principle of your life. And so I think that's a powerful statement. Um, I also think, uh, to use one of Biden's words, that it would be pure malarkey to suggest that we can just get up in the morning um, and write some list of happy things and be happy people. Um, I think, you know, that's disrespectful to folks that are experiencing trauma in this moment. Um, it's disrespectful to folks that have um, physical emotional, autoimmune, et cetera, et cetera, kinds of situations going on in their life, um, chronic pain. Um, so it's not that. Um, but what I found 
is I think that, you know, the human mind we know sort of goes to its comfortable place. And for a lot of us, that place is what I would describe as sort of negative thinking uh, about self and about others and about situations. Um, and it's about protective uh, or isolating or, or, you know, cutting myself off kinds of thinking. And I think one of the things that we really need to do, uh, and the practical Buddha says this, that if, we, if uh, he says in his experience um, as a spiritual person, that one of the things that we need to do uh, is to generate positive thoughts. So to generate positive thinking, to generate thinking um, that, that will have our mind have somewhere else to go when it's in trouble or when it's bored or when it's uh, in, in need of a place to go. So instead of going to the negative defended, there are some other things. And he offers some practical um, solutions to that, which I just want to say, because sometimes these conversations can be like, oh, okay, so now everybody's supposed to go out of here and be happy and joyous and free. And, and that's not how it works. But he offers some basic things, uh, one of which is to, you know, the idea of a gratitude list. So whenever you're thinking how terrible life is or just some people don't want to wake up in the morning before going to sleep, what are some things I can be grateful for? And for some people, it's a cliche. And you, they make these lists and it says the sun came out today and there was a dandelion growing in between the cracks in the sidewalk. And, you know, if that works, that's great. But I think a gratitude list is, you know, We've got some version of our health. We're in this room. We've got some version of connection. We're in this room. We have friends. You know, some of those kind of things. He also suggests just making uh, uh, on your telephone um, or even just having a list of the names, some songs from various parts of your life um, that were at times when you felt safe, when you felt delight, delighted, um, when you felt held, um, when you felt romantic or whatever it was. But just have some of those songs. And so... As you're, you know, walking down the street and you're thinking, ah, I just have to go to this meeting with this person who's difficult and they're going to be difficult again today. Nah, 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 nah. And, you know, rather than focus on what we don't actually know, is to play a couple of songs, you know, to put yourself into a happy place. It's one of the easiest ways to do it. Um, he said you could also do the same thing with a list of people, like if you keep in your mind or maybe on a list on your telephone or in a, in a card in your wallet so that you know during the course of the week you're going to have to go to five meetings with five people that are troublesome or that intimidate you or, or you know uh, make you feel less than um, keep a little list of five people um, that you know you could also visit with this week at some point or call or text um, who make you feel good um, and all of these and uh, other things that we do such as this are affirmations and you know there's lots of self-help books and 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 streaming videos and all that stuff about affirmations. And, you know, oftentimes if you get them, they are exactly what I'm not talking about, which is life is good. I'm in charge of my life. My dog is the best dog ever. And, you know, those may be true. Um, but I think and what I would suggest in terms of affirmations uh, is that, first of all, they be simple and not grandiose, um, that they might serve as the catalyst um, to longer and deeper change. So an uh, example could be today, I will spend two 15-minute periods talking to people who nourish me and hopefully who I nourish. Two 15-minute pieces, that's, that's something you could accomplish. Um, and for those of us that live alone or um, you know, have busy lives and we don't often encounter people we really like because we're busy with people we work with and you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, to really make, a, make an affirmation. Today, I will spend two 15-minute periods. And what we know 
about these kind of positive behaviors and affirmations is if you do it today and do it for a few days and it, and it actually does nourish you, um, chances are you'll do three next week and then you'll, you'll continue that practice. Each little victory we have about finding a way to express our Buddha nature to ourselves and to others uh, makes it more likely that we will do that um, the next time. So, um, you know, other affirmations that I use today, I will spend 30 minutes in the sunshine. We all know that sunshine is good for us. A lot of us are so busy doing stuff that we can't find 15 or 30 minutes to be outside in the sunshine. Um, and then, of course, there's the reality of living here where you have to search for it a little bit. Um, and then a final affirmation, um, by vow, I am Buddha. By vow, we are all Buddhas. Um, my Buddha nature tells me that I have, tells me that I have, and that I can learn everything I need to be joyous, safe, authentic, and awakened. And we believe that everything that we read in Buddhism tells us that, that we all have Buddha nature and we all have that capacity. So some days definitely suck and we get sick and uh, maybe we lose jobs or partners or you know family members get sick or pass away. So some days suck, but the fact is, even on those days, what we, what we are called to do is to show up the best we can and be present um, and, and to be of assistance to those other folks uh, who might need our help if they want it, who might need our presence, who might need us just to sit calmly next to them. And to remember that we also have to be available for them to help us because that's a two-way street. Giver, receiver, and gift are the same. So if we're one of those, if you know anybody like this that's always ready to help somebody else and always ready to ask for what, you know, to respond to what other people need, but never asks for help, um, doesn't really accept it. It's like, no, no, I got this. I'm okay. Um, you know, somebody in my building that I live in has this newest case of COVID and they are absolutely bed bound. Um, and so I called them. I said, anything you need? No, no, I got it. And I said, so-and-so, when's the last, when did you go grocery shopping? Well, I was going to go the day I got sick. So you haven't been grocery shopping in a week, right? I said, so make a list, put it outside your door, and I will get you the groceries. I don't know, I don't like, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. And I said to her, when I said just now to all of us that people need the opportunity to be helpful, right? People need that opportunity to, um, to be there for other people. So, so, you know, if you need anything, ask somebody. Um, and, ask somebody or express that to somebody and then let them have the opportunity to be a service. So I think um, that's just, just really uh, a few practical things that we can do. Um, and just to remember that if we believe on a very basic level um, that our Buddha nature is everything, we have everything we need and we are everything we need to be, to be awakened, to be authentic, um, to be liberated, um, we just need to find it and to stay in touch with it um, and to get guidance from our teachers and our friends about how to be there. And when we've gone slightly off path, because um, I don't know about you folks, but I routinely go slightly off path. Um, and sometimes um, I actually ask somebody what they think and they give me advice. And sometimes I actually follow it. But what I do is when I do, my life gets better. My life gets better. So I want to close today with just reading a poem that I may have read here before because I love it, but um, it's a good one, so we'll have it again. And it's called We Are We Are of a Tribe, and it's by Alberto Rios. <clears throat> Plant seeds in the ground and dreams in the sky, hoping that someday the roots of one will meet the unstretched limbs of the other. 
if it has not happened yet, we share the sky, all of us, the whole world. Together, we are a tribe of eyes that look upward, even as we stand on uncertain ground. The earth beneath us moves, quiet and wild, its boundaries shifting, its muscles wavering. The dream of sky is indifferent to all of this, impervious to the borders, fences, and reservations. The sky is our common home, the place we all live. There we are in the world together. The dream of sky requires no passport. Blue will not be fenced. Blue will not be crying. Look up. Stay a while. Let your breathing slow down. Know that you will always have a home here. So my wish for everyone is that uh, you um, continue your journey home um, and that uh, at its very core, you remember that the journey home starts right here. Thank you. So we have some time if anybody has a question or a thought. Wants to tell me I was 100% wrong in everything I said and I have a better idea for you. Or available for all of that. Just so much I appreciate you bringing up the joy and, and happiness. That's been my recent sort of thing. I keep thinking, um, you know, I like what you said about just kind of it served a purpose in letting you go. My idea has been catapulting things that are that don't make me happy anymore. Um, you know, I'm not old, but I'm not a young man either at this stage. And um, and I'm even embarrassed to say that I think in my culture, maybe we'll have to have a party together. Next year will be my 30th year of Zen practice as well. Um, I didn't look for happiness or joy out of that most of those 30 years, and I'm kind of embarrassed of that in a way. Or, you know, but I, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's been a thing and something I've been trying to think of a lot about too. Like, why do I do this thing that I don't, you know, doesn't benefit me, doesn't bring joy to me, isn't benefiting another person really either? And and how can I start, you know, without being, you know, excessive or you know substance filled and you know chasing things like that i mean i turn my life into something that's a little more joyful because i have a feeling it feels like it's going pretty fast and i think i'll blink and it'll be another you know another 30. yeah another 30 if i yeah if i make it that long but um yeah 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 so um thank you because i think i miss that a lot and i'm not blaming the teachers or the zen institutions i've been i think i gravitated further away from that so yeah I think the important thing is not to be embarrassed to look back and say yeah, there's some time I could have been doing something else, but mm-hmm. not to be embarrassed because Pema Shodron does this wonderful teaching where she says, you hold those past beliefs and actions and the words you spoke mm-hmm. as if they were a beautiful crystal ball, beautiful crystal ball, because at the time they served a purpose, so you wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, At the time, it was something that, that had value to you. She said, and after you look at it and all its beauty and its fine worksmanship, Throw it over your shoulder and smash it to hell. <laughs> like that. And just let it go. Now, if only it was that easy, just to yeah. throw it over our shoulder, because yeah. what we know is that it's not actually crystal, it's rubber and it bounces <laughs> before you put your hand down sometimes it's back. Yeah. But then you get to say, you know, with each little time I threw it away, it bounced back, so I'm gonna throw it farther away. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I do think in terms of compassion that it's really important. Yeah, to look back, and, and we all have things, you know, and, and, and that, you know, in, in recovery work, they talk about defects of character. And I've never in all my years let anybody I work with as a sponsor use that expression because we're not defective. We're, we're, our characters are not defective. We did what we needed to do to survive in that moment. 
And if somebody had been around to say, okay, you did that, you got through today, don't do that, don't do that again tomorrow because people aren't going to put up with it or you shouldn't have to put up with it. Uh, but I think it's to not be embarrassed, but to say, ah, that was a learning moment. You know, I did that and now I'm doing this. This feels better because I'm, I'm the airplane here. So life is good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Helpful. Anybody else? There is a time for uh, tea and movie reviews. Yes. I wanted to make a comment that uh, I, I really appreciated that quote you brought up from uh, Avi Dharma. I thought that was quite beautiful that uh, the body is the soil from which enlightenment grows. Mm. That's really poetic. And uh, I don't know, it's working as a gardener too, I guess you kind of. There you go. Do you see kind of a, like where does the plant begin? Where does it end? You yeah. know, if there's kind of that Buddhist aspect to it, I think. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's a beautiful metaphor. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it was actually as I was reading it, I was thinking of you um, and the work that you do and, and the work that David does in the gardens. It's, you know, it's such a uh, such a good metaphor. Yeah. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org.